0: The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. This is a very appropriate letter because we're right before Tisha B'av. We're commemorating the destruction and we are yearning and trying to achieve the redemption. And this letter explains the saying of the rabbis that the Jewish people will only be redeemed through tzedakah, only through tzedakah, through charity. And he's going to explain why. What's the connection? Giving tzedakah is a beautiful thing. What's the connection between giving tzedakah and redemption and the coming of Mashiach? What's, what does one have to do with the other? And that's what he, he begins to explain that King David says that my uh, my inner heart searches you. I search my inner heart, and he explained that there's two levels of the heart. There's the external part of the heart, where a person I love, I hate. These are all external emotions, emotions that you can easily describe and put into words. Things you can easily put into words are very superficial, even though you feel you're on fire and. You're all enthusiastic and you're passionate, but it's very superficial passion, and it's a very superficial fire. A person who thinks he's on fire and he's a ball of fire and he thinks already he's it, he's he's arrived, and he learns this chapter and you discover you haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> you're not even you're barely in first base because it's all external, it's all superficial. You're still detached from it. It's still something that's detached from you, and that's why you're so excited about it. You get excited about something that's not you. You get excited about something novel, something... But it's not really you. It hasn't touched you very deeply. Versus there is something that really touches you deeply. And it has staying power. It stays with you. We see you get excited about something, and the next day it's erased as if it never happened. What happened to all that bubbling enthusiasm? And, and for a moment you, you could fool someone. We can even fool ourselves. Look, I'm so passionate about it. And the next day it's as if, as if it never happened. What does that tell you? Even when it happened, it never really happened. The whole thing is just very superficial. By nature, we are very superficial. Our whole surface consciousness is very superficial. Then you have the inner heart. The inner heart reaches our subconscious. It's much deeper. It's the, phys- the human analogy would be, if there's something in your life which your life depends on, if something affected and affected your very being and your very existence that uh, that feeling would runs much deeper than just your superficial, water-of-the-mill, regular emo- emotions. You know, soldiers are going to battle. Have these experiences, these life-altering experiences, these peak experiences. When you're in a life situation where your life is on the line, you know, people, their whole life flashes in front of them. Reality slows down. Things that happen in a split second, you feel like it, 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 it takes an eternity for it to happen you're operating in a different dimension you're able to do things that you never even thought was humanly possible and suddenly you're able to do it when your life is on the line your focus, your concentration you're tapping into a whole different dimension a whole reservoir of strength of energy of, that you never even suspected that you even have and you're so concentrated and you're so focused that's what we call the inner heart the inner heart is that's real That's genuine. Most people go through their whole life and they never want to experience it. That's why we love heroes. Why do we love heroes? The hero did one thing heroic in his life. Maybe the whole thing took one minute of his life. But forever and ever, for the rest of his life, we stand up for him, we respect him. He's a hero. He did something superhuman. He lived for one minute. He lived in a different dimension. He lived in a different level. He touched life. He lived life. He touched his inner heart. He was able to experience that inner, the subconscious that all came to the fore, to the surface. That's what we call the inner heart. And the good news is that every Jew has that inner heart. We have that inner connection with Hashem, that divine spark. What we call the Yechidosh of a Nefesh, the spark, the divine, the Jewish spark within us. What makes us Jewish? It's the Jew within us. It's not the gefilte fish, it's not the latkes, it's it's the Jew within us that makes us Jewish. And the, the, that's what we call the Pintal Yid. But the Pintal Yid is very hard to access. Why is it hard to access? It should be natural. Since this is our core, this is our essence, it should be the most natural thing in the world. And yet it's completely foreign to us. It's difficult. It's distant. We have to dig very deep to touch it, to feel it, to experience it. Or certain extraordinary moments, like the previous Le described, you know, he lived through the Nazi invasion of Poland. He was in Warsaw when Hitler invaded Poland. And he attacked Warsaw. This was the first war in history where your living room became the front line. Even in World War I, the front line was outside the city. Hitler introduced a new warfare. The front line was your bedroom and your living room. He attacked apartment houses and he attacked c- civilians. This was the most cruel, cruelest war. And the previous Rebbe lived in Warsaw at the time, and he lived through the bombardment. He describes it. He was an incredible writer, and he describes the whole scene. One moment you have an apartment building, the next moment it's gone, and thousands of people are buried alive, and limbs flying, and it's just the, the, the whole scenario. And he says that one, t- one day the bombardment was very heavy, and everyone ran to the local shelter, local bomb shelter. In the neighborhood where the previous Rebbe was, a few thousand Jews gathered, and yet had all stripes of Jews, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, Hasidic, Reformed, Conservative, Atheist, Zionist, Socialist, Communist. Any, anything you can think of, everyone was there. Everyone was present. Everyone was doing their own thing. The Hasidic Jews were reading the Psalms. The Communist Jews were reading Karl Marx. <laughs> everyone was doing their thing. And suddenly, he says, a bomb fell right at the entrance of the shelter. And a sheet of flame erupted. For a moment they thought, this is it. They're all going to be engulfed by this flame. And the previous Rebbe describes how everyone in that room, a few thousand Jews, together, in unison, yelled out nice. in the top of their lung with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body. Shema Yisrael Hashem, O'Keym Hashem. He, said, he gave him the shivers. He said, do you think it was a difference how the Hasidic Jew who went to shul three times a day The way he yelled out the Shema Yisrael. And the reform and the conservative and the atheist and the Zionist. The professor who wrote books explaining why he hates his Judaism the self-hating Jew. Do you think it was any difference how they yelled the Shema Yisrael? There was absolutely no difference. They all yelled it from the bottom of their heart. In a moment of truth. All these labels, superficial, external labels that people, we label ourselves, we confine ourselves, we limit ourselves. All flew out the window. And the essence of the Jew emerged in all its beauty. And you saw there's absolutely no difference. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Every Jew has that same spark, has that same connection, deep down. But it took that moment of truth to bring it out. As the Rebbe once pointed out, it probably did not hurt the fact that the previous Rebbe was there. <laughs> because the Rebbe, a Rebbe embodies this Pintle and he is the essence, the core. He embodies the core and essence of a Jew and his connection with Hashem. So when you're in the presence, and his presence, it evoked within all of the Jews or surrounding him that they all felt that Pintle Yid. But nevertheless, they yelled out. They shouted out. It was their Shema Yisrael. They owned it. Because the truth is, this is, at the very, this is located at the very center and the very core and essence of our being. Everyone else. And he says, this prepared him to come to America. Where even the streets in America were not kosher. Many tefillin were thrown overboard on the way to the Statue of Liberty, to, to the Ellis Island, the Hudson. People thought America's different. You can't really be Jewish in America. Judaism is for the shtetl, but not for America. America, you gotta assimilate, you gotta, it's a melting pot, you gotta fit in, you gotta work on Shabbat, you gotta be practical. America's different. And the previous Rebbe, said his experience at that shelter showed him. He had a live example, a live demonstration that America is not different. No matter where a Jew is at, no matter who they are, where they are, at the end of the day, you'll always find a Shema Yisrael. Danny Pearl, at the end of his life, how did he finish his life? He said, I'm a Jew, and my mother is a Jew, and he said, Shema Yisrael. At the end of the day, the truth comes out and Ed Koch what did he write on his his, buried in the Christian cemetery but what did he write Shema Yisrael Hashem and Hashem there's no going away from it this is who we are but it's very difficult to access why the question is why should it be difficult to access this is our truth this is our core truth a moment a moment of truth only reveals what's there all along the crisis doesn't create anything new that moment when the bomb went off just revealed the truth like the last moment before you live, the last moment of your life, every Jew yells out, Shema Yisrael, Hashem because that's a moment of truth. It just reveals the truth that's always there. The crisis can only reveal something that's there. So if that's our core truth today, every day, all the time, every Jew, wherever they are, whoever they are, whatever life circumstances they find themselves in, then why is it that we need a crisis? We need a six-day war. We need a crisis to remind us who we are and what we're all about. During the Six-Day War, there was no right-wing, left-wing. All Jews coalesced, all Jews united, and that's when the miracles happen. When Jews are united, miracles happen. There's no force on earth that can touch us when Jews are united. That's our strength. But again, crisis only reveals the truth that's there all the time. So the question is, why can't we live this truth all the time? Why is it so difficult to access? And the answer is because of the covering of the heart. Because of our attachments. We have other attachments. We're attached to materialism. We're naturally attracted to materialism. Although it's a dead end and it's empty and it's a road to nowhere because it never really satisfies us. It's not really what we're looking for in life. Money, power, fame, indulgence never satisfies us because it's not really what we're looking for. But nevertheless, our attachment to material things is what obscures and covers up on the inner heart. doesn't allow us to access that inner heart. And he explains, we're not talking about negative behavior. Negative behavior, we understand, how negative behavior dampens our soul, covers up in our soul. Because you can't speak lies and slander someone and cheat and steal and be rough and gruff and and nasty and mean and do something immoral... And then expect to feel godly and holy. That we understand. You can't, it doesn't go together. It's like fire and water. If you want to be godly, you want to be holy, you have to act godly, you have to act holy. You have to be genuine, you have to be disciplined. You have to be on a spiritual diet, just like a person who wants to eat healthy. You have to throw away junk food, and you have to be disciplined. And of course, when you eat healthy, you feel great. You feel like a million bucks. It feels good. You eat healthy food, you eat organic food, feel it's delicious, it's tasty, it's healthy, you feel energized. When you eat junk, it tastes good for the moment, but, but, it, but it's a road to nowhere. It makes you only hungrier and is empty. It doesn't nourish you, it doesn't nurture you, there's nothing there. The analogy in Kabbalah is called a klipa. Just like you have junk food, you have junk lifestyle. When someone acts immoral, it's a junk lifestyle. You're eating junk when you're eating junk, and then it's no wonder why it doesn't nourish you and it doesn't nurture you there's nothing there there's nothing there to sustain you it's pure garbage so a person lives a garbage lifestyle even though today they celebrate garbage junk li- lifestyles but there's nothing to celebrate it's a drunk lifestyle it's empty it's barren it's, 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 it's a dead end there's no- nothing there to nurture your soul there's nothing there to nurture your neshamah there's nothing there to give you any inner satisfaction it's pure garbage junk so that we can understand that if you live a lifestyle, if you're living a life which contradicts an immoral life and you're behaving immorally, then of course you're not going to f- be sensitive to anything godly, to anything holy, to anything wholesome, uplifting, inspiring. How could you be inspired if you're living like a chazer? You can. not But that that's what he calls the external circumcision. The, the, the circumcision, there's two parts of circumcision. There's the external cover, and then there's the the uh, membrane, the soft membrane. And f- in order to fulfill the mitzvah of circumcision, you have to remove not just the, the cover, you also have to remove the thin membrane. So too in the parallel, in the spiritual sense, the cover-up of the heart, the cover-up over the soul, you have the thick membrane, which is immoral behavior. But that circumcision we can do on our own. You just have to discipline yourself and take it upon yourself to think like a Jew speak like a Jew and act like a Jew follow the code of Jewish law act morally speak morally think morally live a wholesome life yes it takes discipline it takes constant awareness it's not easy but nothing good in life is easy ask any athlete nothing good in life is easy you have to work very hard ask any artist any accomplished person anything in life if you want to accomplish something unless you want to live a mediocre life But if you want to live a life where you stand out, where you make a difference, where you make a mark, where you you feel fulfilled and satisfied and challenged and engaged, it takes effort. Life is not a free, free for all. If it's free, it's worthless. It's meaningless. It has no value. So if you want to accomplish something, it takes discipline, it takes strength, but you feel like a million dollars. It's worthwhile. It's rewarding. So of course it's difficult, but it's doable. We can do it. We take the bull by the horn and we rein ourselves in and we make a choice. I don't want to live drunk, a junk lifestyle. I don't want to eat junk food. I want to live wholesome and healthy and, and live an energized life, a wholesome life, an uplifting life, an inspired life. That part we can take care of. But the problem is even if we're doing everything kosher and galat kosher, but we're still too attached to the materialism. We're eating galat kosher but we dive into the food. We're really into it. When you're really into the materialism, it's very hard at the same time to really be into godliness and holiness and spirituality. It dulls our sensitivities. It covers up in the inner parts of the heart. You can't access the deeper parts of the heart. You can't access your subconscious. But this circumcision is very difficult for us to perform because it's difficult for us to access our subconscious. You know, we don't have the tools necessarily to access our subconscious. We think logically. We think with our logical mind. So the most we can access is our external consciousness. It's hard for us to really get deeper, to go deep inside and to access our inner hearts. So this is what the verse says that once we will do whatever we are capable of doing to the best of our ability, then Hashem, God, will circumcise our heart. So this circumcision is divine. Hashem will circumcise our heart. And this, he explains, is the meaning of the coming of Mashiach and why it's taking so long for Mashiach to come. Because the journey that we're waiting for, it's not the allow ticket to move to Israel. I'm sure Mashiach could afford the $500 when they had a sale it was 500 okay, even the $1,500 I'm sure Mashiach could, could hack it That's, the journey that we're waiting for is not the physical locate, relocation it's a spiritual journey from the subconscious to the conscious and that journey we've been working on for the last we've been working at it for the last 3,800 years and it's a very difficult thing to chip to chip away and ultimately Hashem has to make that move after everything that we've done and, every, and we, we are doing the best our, to our ability, the utmost of our ability, Hashem will come and there'll be a moment. There'll be a moment. Just like there was a moment when Hashem took the Jews out of Egypt. There was a historical moment in time at midnight when the, the clock struck midnight, exactly at midnight, on the 15th day of Nisan, the year, five, in the year 2448 from creation. At that moment, there was an intense revelation of godliness and Hashem yanked us out of Egypt. There'll be a moment when there'll be like an earthquake, an opening, when our, our subconscious will just open up. It'll be like the light switch going on. As a result of the thousands of years of all the tears and hope and good deeds and mitzvot and tzedakah and all the things that, we've, that has been accumulating, all the <coughs> deeds of ourselves and our ancestors all the way back to Abraham, there will reach, be a moment when all of it will reach a critical mass. And every Jew is obligated to believe that I have the ability to be the one to create that critical mass. I can be the one to do that last mitzvah on top of all the mitzvah that were done and the blood and the heroism and the sacrifice and the dedication and the devotion and the joy and the tear and the faith and the trust. All of that positive energy and mitzvot and good deeds and Torah study and all the sweat and toil all of that, all that accumulation at this moment in history, all the bases are loaded. We're in the ninth inning and every one of us is being called up to the bat to hit that home run that will bring us all back home to Yerushalayim. We have to believe it. You can bring Mashiach, you can bring Mashiach, I can bring Mashiach. Every one of us could be the one on a Wednesday afternoon by doing that extra mitzvah, pushing ourselves, giving an extra penny to charity, Studying an extra minute of Torah. Giving someone an extra smile. You've already exhausted your, exhausted your, your quotas of the, for the day. Push yourself. Say an extra kind word. Whatever it is. That extra effort, that one little good deed has the power to tip the scale and bring redemption not only for ourselves and our own personal lives but for the whole entire universe to transform and revolutionize human consciousness. Because we're waiting for this moment when there will be this revelation, this intense revelation when the, there'll be an opening, when the subconscious will emerge and to our conscious level. But this is the circumcision of the heart, the inner heart, when Hashem will remove that thin membrane, that blockage, that cover-up. And this is something only Hashem can do. We can tease Hashem, we can stir Hashem, we can evoke, we can try, we can, but ultimately, Hashem has to make that move. And that's what we pray for, that Hashem will circumcise our hearts. And that's why it says Mashiach will come. It'll be like a surprise. It'll take us by surprise. It'll be like sudden. The question is, what do you mean it's sudden? It'll take us by surprise. We've only been praying and begging and pleading and yearning and hoping and anticipating and waiting for the coming of Mashiach every day, especially today. So what do you mean it's going to take us by surprise? It's going to, as he explains, because of the revelation of Mashiach is from such a high level since it comes from the inner part of the heart which supersedes our conscious level. it comes from a deeper place in our consciousness so it will take our whole conscious our whole frame of reference which is our conscious mind will be taken, off, will be taken by surprise because it's coming from a much deeper place and therefore we don't we, we can't really prepare for it as prepared as we are as hopeful as we are as much as we're anticipating for it we can't really imagine what it's going to be like because we don't live in that level We can't access that level. So when it will actually happen, we'll experience it, it will blow us away. And nothing in our life could prepare us for the actual moment, for the actual revelation of Mashiach. So of course we're waiting and hoping and anticipating, but nevertheless, the the revelation itself will be so intense and so profound and so deep and so earth-shattering and so powerful, and it will feel so natural because it's coming from the deepest place within us that we can't usually access. That's covered up. But Hashem will circumcise the, the thin membrane, the inner part of our heart, and will, will allow the inner part of our heart, the Jew within us, to emerge in its full glory. And now, he's going to explain that this is on a macrocosm. This is on a global level. But what's true on a global level is also true on a personal level, because we are a microcosm. So whatever happens on a global level also happens on, on the microcosm. That's why when a Jew prays, when we have a problem in our lives, whatever it may be, whether it's health, financial, Shalom Bayez, finding a Shidduch, with children, parents, whatever problems we may have, a Jew has to realize that my personal problems are part of a larger picture. There's a bigger picture. It's not just I'm suffering as an individual, as an isolated individual. Hashem is suffering. The Jewish people are suffering. The whole world is suffering. The whole universe is off-kilter. The whole universe is upside down. Moses is still stuck in the desert. Jewish history is still stuck in the desert. We have no way to explain the Holocaust. We have no way to explain all the tragedies of Jewish history. It's only when Mashiach will come. that we will have an inkling, a glimpse. So, uh, that's why the rabbis instituted all the prayers. You know how many prayers there are for health? In the silent prayer, in the Shemona Esri, the ultimate prayer. How many prayers are there for health? One. One. A grand total of one. How important is health in our life from one to ten? Eleven. Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> you know how many prayers there are to earn, a, to earn a living? To pay your bills, to earn a good living? A grand total of one. And we know how important that is. And how urgent that is. We needed it yesterday. You know how many prayers there are for the coming of Mashiach In the same Shemoneseret, which we say three times a day. And we just finished Mincha. In most synagogues we do Maire right after Mincha. You just finished praying. No, it's not enough. I have to pray again. You know how, many times, how many prayers are there in the Shemonesi for the coming of Mashiach? Five. Five. Close. Five. So think about it. The rabbis are telling us that this is a better way to pray for your own personal needs. When you remember that my problems are related to the bigger picture. So when you resolve the bigger issue, all of the individual issues will be resolved at the same time. So it's a much better way to pray for your own personal needs because you're the only one that's suffering. There isn't a day that goes by that you don't have hundreds of thousands of Jews all around the world who pray sincerely with a broken heart, with tears, because of the anguish that they're in, whatever situations they happen to be in. But instead of everyone being parochial and narrow and selfish and self-centered and just thinking about themselves, the rabbi said, hey, you're crying already. (laughs) Cry for the bigger picture. And Mashiach will come, your neighbor will be good, will be good for your neighbor, will be good for you, will be good for God, will be good for Mashiach, will be good for the whole Jewish people, for the whole universe. It's a much better way, a much more powerful way of praying. So the rabbis are trying to train, to train us to realize that there's a macrocosm, there's a microcosm, there's a global, there's an individual. We are a reflection of the whole universe, every one of us. So you have to think in those terms. We, what's going on in our own personal lives, is a reflection of the whole universe. And the same is true in the positive side the happiest day of our life the day we get married, we stand under the chuppah, what do we say in those blessings, the shabbat Ebrachos? That just like God re- rejoices us, may He rejoice in the coming of Mashiach. Because the happiest day of your life, when you're experiencing that raw, intense joy, that indescribable joy, that becomes the foundation for the rest of your life, you have to realize your joy is a reflection of the ultimate joy, the marriage of the Jewish people in Hashem when God will consummate his marriage with the Jewish people, which will take place with the coming of Mashiach. Imagine the joy of that moment. So your joy is a plug-in, is a reflection, a taste, a small taste, of the joy that you'll experience with the coming of Mashiach. And that's why the day you get married, you can give blessings, a very powerful moment, because you're getting a taste of the future. So he's saying, when we talk of redemption in the global sense, when the entire Jewish people will be redeemed and the temple will be rebuilt and God's presence will emerge from hiding and the hidden, the, the godly spark, the Jew within us will emerge from hiding and will be, become full-fledged and will be palpable and tangible. We'll feel it. It'll become natural. We'll sense it. But we can also experience that on a personal level. Even before Mashiach comes. And that's what we call a personal redemption. We can experience on a miniature level a personal redemption. A personal coming of Mashiach. In our own personal life. Where and when do we experience that? And that's what he's going to explain now. That's during prayer. That is what prayer is all about. What is the difference between Torah study and prayer? Torah is intellectually engaged. In the midst of studying Torah, besides repeating and, re- and reviewing that that you've already learned, making sure you don't forget it, you retain it, primarily the midst of studying Torah is to learn something new. Every day your mind is curious. You want to learn something new. New information or deeper understanding of the same information that you knew earlier. Every day you grow in knowledge and awareness. Prayer is the exact opposite. Every day you say the exact same prayer. It's so predictable. <laughs> Every day. Thousands and thousands of times you say it over and over and over again. exact same prayer. How could you say the same prayer over and over and over again and you don't don't tire how do you keep prayers fresh and the answer is it's like the difference between speaking and singing if someone speaks the rabbi speaks and then he speaks again he says the same thing you're ready to throw tomatoes on the rabbi you can't hear the same thing over and over and over the rabbis can say the same thing over and over again, but it's difficult to say that they hear the same thing over and over again. However, your favorite song, you can hear your favorite song a thousand times. And the thousandth time is just as refreshing, just as exciting, just as thrilling as the first time. If, someone, if you speak and someone else speaks, what do you, what do you call that? Interrupting. If you sing and someone sings with you, it's beautiful. I mean, a good cantor is someone who gets the whole audience to sing along with him. If you say something and someone contradicts you, you get very angry. But if you sing and someone sings a little differently, what do we call that? We call that harmony. It's beautiful. When you sing, you close your eyes. When you speak, you keep your eyes open. It's easy to speak and not mean a word you say. Ask any politician. It's difficult to sing and not mean it, not be genuine. It's very hard. When you sing, it comes from within you. Because the difference between speaking and, and singing, speaking is a language of the, of the mind, it's external. Singing is a language of the soul. It's a difference between knowing and experiencing When you know something, it's knowledge, it's information, it's interesting. First time, it's interesting. And you always have to learn something new. Otherwise you grow bored. When you experience something, every time you're re-experiencing it, it's like for the very first time. It's always fresh. When you re-experience something, you you relive. You relive something that you've experienced in your past. It's as if it's for the very first time. You're reliving it. So every time you relive it, It's fresh. It's exciting. And that's why prayer takes time. In prayer, we're not here to learn something new. In prayer, you're trying to take all these concepts that you know and that you've studied and you've learned and try to live it, to experience it. But to experience something takes time. You don't get there with a snap of a finger. You have to work your way. Prayer is a process. You have to climb the ladder. You have to work your way until you really experience it. When you experience it, that's prayer. And that's the difference. The external part within us, the conscious part, is all external. But it's in prayer that we have the ability to achieve and to tap into and to touch the inner heart. To really experience. Experience godliness Not to say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, God is one. But to live it. To experience it. To breathe it. It's like the famous story of Rabbi Dover, I was just at his grave the other week. The Magid of rich. before he became Rebbe, he had a colleague They used to study together and he studied the Kabbalah together. And when the Rebbe became Rebbe, his friend came to visit him. And he noticed that his colleague, Rabbi Dovber, the Magid, is praying for hours and hours and hours. And he wondered, he said, he asked him, why are you praying for hours? We both studied the same Kabbalah. I know all the Kabbalistic intentions of every word in prayer just as well as you. And it takes me an hour to pray. Why are you lost in prayer hours and hours now? Now, this colleague was also a businessman. Twice a year, he'd go to the mar- big market, he'd buy wholesale, and then he'd come back to town and sell it to the retailers. So for 10 ye- months out of the year, he sat and studied Torah, and for two months, he was busy. He'd close the books, travel, buy enough supply for the whole year and bring it back to town and sell it, and from that, he made a living. So the Maggit said, let me ask you, I know that it bothers you that you waste two months out of the year doing business. You would rather sit and study Torah 12 months a year. Let me ask you, why do you actually have to travel and go to the marketplace and buy all this? Why don't you just sit down, close your eyes, and in your imagination, imagine that you, you rented a horse and buggy, and imagine that you're traveling. Think of the scenery on the way. Imagine you're coming to the town. Imagine you're buying, and then you load up, and you're selling. The whole journey could take you an hour. And then you can spend time studying. <laughs> so he laughing. He says, well, very nice, but I'm not going to have any business from imagination. You don't get any business. This is not Hollywood. You know, no. you got to produce. So uh, my Rabbi uh, Dover said, you just answered your own question. You study the Kabbalah. So you have all the information. You're brilliant. You're bright. You know, you have all that knowledge. So it's for you, you can pray in one hour. He says, I actually have to travel. I have to get there. I have to experience it. It's not enough for me to know the information. When you pray, you want to live it. When you say, blessed is Hashem, you don't go further until you feel it and you experience it. When you say that Hashem creates the world every moment, it's not just empty words or just interesting information, abstract information. You want to feel it and experience it. When you say Hashem is absolutely one, there's no other reality but Hashem, I don't go ahead, I don't go further until I actually live it and experience it. That takes time. That's what the purpose of prayer is. So prayer... And that's the difference between this world and the world to come. After 120 years, the soul goes to its eternal reward in heaven. What's the difference between heaven and earth? In heaven, the soul gets to bask in the radiance of Hashem. It gets to experience Godliness. Here, we study about it. We learn it. We study it. But it's all abstract words to us. We can't really relate to it. We can't really connect with it. We talk about godliness. We talk about lofty concepts, lofty ideas. But we don't really connect with it. We don't really relate with it because we are physical beings. We are trapped within the physical body. Our whole frame of reference is our consciousness. And we can't get beyond it. So to us, it's just abstraction. But the soul, after 120 years, when the soul is free from the body, the soul actually experiences. Every level that the soul is at, it actually experiences. You know, we read about uh, near-death experiences. People with cl- who are clinically dead and came back to life, and they describe how they saw the light, and, they, and it was an indescribable experience. Those experiences you can only have once the soul leaves the body, because this world is not the world of experiences. This world is a world of action. It's very external. Even our emotions, even our understanding, is all very superficial. The only chance we have to get a glimpse. To get a taste of raw experience, pure experience, is in prayer. And that's the purpose of prayer. We're not just praying for our needs. God, I need this, I need this. Please be so kind enough to give me what I need. For that, you don't need to spend an hour every day praying. It can take me five minutes. Hello, Hashem. Thank you for giving me life. Have a wonderful day. This is what I need. Please take care of it. I'll see you tomorrow. I mean, why do you have to spend an hour? The whole prayer. Because in prayer, we're not just asking for our needs. We're trying to experience godliness. We're trying to get beyond the external, the superficial, the external emotions and trying to get to the inner heart. So in prayer, we can achieve somewhat of redemption, which is experiencing godliness. And when every one of us, by every one of us, experiencing our own personal redemption, it all adds up. One personal redemption adds up to another personal redemption. And before you know it, all these little flames add up to a huge torch which leads us to the collective redemption, to the collective Mashiach. When we achieve Mashiach in our own personal lives, and we achieve redemption in our own personal lives, and we're able to access and to tap into and to experience the godly spark that's located at the very center of our being and it becomes a living dynamic force for us, a positive force, a joyous force, as it emerges within our own personal life from The microcosm, from that it spreads to the macrocosm. And the general shekhinah, the general godliness, which is the core and essence of all of existence, will also emerge. And that's Mashiach. What is Mashiach? Mashiach is when godliness will become palpable and tangible and felt. And that will become our natural reality. Not like it is today. When you walk down Park Avenue, you don't sense godliness. Not yet. You sense a lot of ego, a lot of arrogance, precious little of godliness Mashiach will come, you walk down Park Avenue you walk down any avenue you're going to sense holiness and godliness and wholesomeness and genuineness and depth and reality not like today where everything is smoke and mirrors it's such a false world everything is a bunch of smoke and mirrors there's no reality to it multiculturalism, multi-pluralism people don't know what's up and what's down what's right and what's wrong if there is a right or wrong it's such a confused, discombobulated world. That's the, that's the exile. The world of Mashiach is when all the smoke will clear, the light switch will go on, and we'll feel it. And the truth is, once Mashiach comes, it'll hit us that we knew this all along. It's not like it's anything new. We'll say, Of course, I always knew there's a God in this world, deep down. I was just a little discombobulated and I didn't didn't put it all together. But once it becomes so tangible and so clear, we'll feel it, it'll be natural, it'll be self-evident, it'll be obvious. And you'll experience it, it won't just be abstract knowledge. You'll feel it, you'll sense it. That's the world of Mashiach, it's the most natural thing in the world. It's the status quo that's completely unnatural. We're so disconnected, we're so out of touch with our real selves. And we're living off a a diet of junk food and junk lifestyle. But this is so unnatural. And so unsatisfying. And it's a dead end. It leads to nowhere. So how do we get to Mashiach? By every one of us achieving a breakthrough in our own personal life. Through prayer. This is the centrality of prayer. Why prayer is so essential in Jewish life. It's not just begging for our needs. This is connecting, connecting with our essence, connecting with our core, connecting with the godliness, with the pintle located within us. Okay, let's begin in the middle of page 57. Similarly, every particular spark of the Shekhinah inherent in the soul of every individual Jew emerges for the moment from exile and captivity during that momentary life which is prayer. During the service of his heart, from the depths of his heart, from the innermost point which becomes divested of the concealing foreskin and soars upwards to cleave to him with a fierce passion. This innermost point being a love of Hashem in the spirit of the phrase for the sake of your life, a love that springs from awareness that godliness is the person's entire life. This is an all-encompassing love. Just like your life. You don't compartmentalize your life. Life is not 9 to 5. Life is not Monday through Friday. You don't take a recess from life. You don't take a break from life. Life is all-encompassing. The moment you're born to the last moment. And you know, you never grow bored. Breathing is very exciting. <laughs> Even though we have been breathing... <laughs> for decades and decades. It's not boring. It's very exciting. You don't, you don't have to make life more exciting than it is. It, it's exciting. It's you don't good. think about it. You don't think about it. But it's, it, it's, it's uh, something that's so essential and it's so real to us. You don't think, think about it, but we do it every moment. So when you say that God is my life, when you realize that Judaism is not religion, Judaism is not something that's compartmentalized, something that you do on occasion. I have art in my life, I have ballet, I have religion. What you do on weekends, certain holidays, certain activities. Some people dance, some people read the Torah. Everyone has their interests. That's not Judaism. Judaism is not religion. Judaism is not compartmentalized. Judaism is a way of life. It's my life. When you sense that godliness is my life, and therefore it encompasses everything. Every part of me is part of my Judaism. Everything that I do is part of my Judaism. My own personal life, my personal interests, my career, whatever it is, 24-7. I'm not only Jewish when I'm in the synagogue, on Shabbat, when I'm standing at the Western Wall, on Yom Kippur when I'm dressed in white and fasting and I feel like an angel. I'm Jewish 24-7. In my personal relationships, in my business, when I'm standing at the water cooler on a Wednesday afternoon, Judaism permeates every detail, every aspect of my life. I'm eating kosher. Middle of business, I'm eating kosher. What is? It's not religion. It's it's every part of my life is part of my Jewishness. Everything, my relationships, my intimate relationships, personal, private. Intimate. It's Hashem is my life. Once you realize that Hashem is my life, this is an all-engaging love. It's an all-engaging. Every part of me is involved. This you can experience in prayer, when you reach the level and you realize that Hashem is my life and therefore it's the most natural thing in the world what does a person want in life what is a person seek, seeking in life if you have to boil it down to get to the quintessence well, what are we looking for in life we're looking for life we're looking for energy for passion if someone gave you a million dollars but it was a dull existence you, you would lose interest you're looking for life People are always looking for entertainment, excitement, thrill. You want to feel alive. When you realize that Hashem is the source of life, you want to feel alive? If you're plugged in and connected to the source of life, then you'll feel alive. That's the only source of life. You're looking for life, run to Shul. Plug in. And then you're alive 24-7. You're always connected. So this is an all-encompassing love. This is a love that comes from the depth of our being. It's like a marriage. It's 24-7. It's not, it's not 9 to 5. It's, the only, it's a total relationship. Not 99.9%, 100%. Every part of you, physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological, conscious, subconscious, every part of you is totally engaged, fully engaged. So Judaism is a marriage, a relationship with Hashem. Once you realize and where do you experience this? During prayer. During prayer, you can experience that relationship with Hashem. That's why the Baal said. I was just at the Baal uh, grave for the first time last week. Where? The Baal Shem is in the Ukraine, in Mezhabu's. You were there? Yeah. yeah. So the Baal said that that's the reason we shake in prayer. Why does the Jew shake? Shuckle. You notice? The Jew shuckles. It's uniquely Jewish, by the way. Goyim don't chuckle. <laughs> they don't chuckle. They stay very stiff, very still, very respectful. Come to the house of worship, yeah, yeah, yeah. a Jew shakes, shuckling away. That's how, there, was, there was someone who has a whole theory that the Pashtuns in Afghanistan are one of the Ten Lost Tribes. One of his proofs are because you go to their uh, madrasas, their schools, the kids are shuckling away. <laughs> Only Jews shuckle. It's very, it's very strange. It's very unique. To everyone else, it looks very strange. Jews are shuckling away. They're praying. They're shaking away. Like a lulav. They're shaking back and forth when they're studying Torah. So in the code of Jewish law, it says, why does the Jew shake? Because the soul is like a candle. candle is constantly flickering. It's constantly it's yearning to go up. So it's constantly moving. The Baal Shantar says, because in prayer... A Jew is being intimate with Hashem. We're married to Hashem. We have a relationship with Hashem. And a relationship is not just cerebral, emotional. It's physical. It's every fiber of our being. Every bone in our body is totally engaged. And that's why we physically shakal. And that's where our Judaism comes alive. Without prayer, our Judaism is dry, dead, mechanical. It's more like a corpse. There's no life. There's no soul. There's no energy. There's no joy. It's very harsh. Bitter, angry. It's enough what I have to do. I just do the bare minimum and the rest, you know. I find, try to find a rabbi who will give me every loophole under the sun. It's like paying income taxes, you know. It's a, more like a burden. You do whatever you have to, to you find every loophole. never you, you have an obligation. You do what you have to. But it's only in prayer that your Judaism comes alive. It becomes a joy. It becomes your life. When it's your life, you don't just do the mitzvah, you do it beautifully. You beautify the mitzvah. You're not looking for any loopholes. You want to do the mitzvah the best way possible and spend money on the mitzvah and beautify the mitzvah because it's your life. This is what energizes you. This is what inspires you. This is what uplifts you. The only way to achieve that is through prayer. A person who doesn't pray, a person who never gets beyond his ego, then his whole being is external and superficial. He can be brilliant but it's all up here, it's all in the mind. And that was the challenge, that was the problem with Ashkenazi Jews, especially Ashkenazi intellectuals. The whole Judaism was up here. It was a head trip. And when Judaism is a head trip, you lose your heart and you lose your soul. You become disconnected. It becomes like a disembodied mind. And it's very unnatural, it's soulless, and that's why Jews couldn't run away fast enough. When Judaism became Orthodox in Eastern Europe 300 years ago, which is an artificial label, when Judaism became religionized and became Orthodox, that gave birth to Reform and Conservative. It was one distortion that led to another distortion. Because Judaism became a hatred, soulless, heartless, joyless, harsh, very negative, and very egotistic. And that's not Judaism. The Sephardic Jews never suffered from that. By the Sephardic Jews, you won't find reform, conservative, Orthodox. All their rabbis were great Kabbalists. They never lost touch with the soul of Judaism. And that's why there's very little assimilation amongst, amongst the Sephardic Jews. They, they, they don't have all these this illusions and, and this dishonesty, actually, trying to, if I don't live up to Judaism, I'm going to change the rules and change the laws. There's an honesty and there's a respect. And this is a uniquely Ashkenazi illness that resulted from the environment. Since we lived in the Enlightenment, we should rather call it the endarkment, not the Enlightenment, we were affected by it. And Judaism became a religion and became Orthodox and became a head trip. Completely soulless and heartless. And It's only in prayer that you have the ability to go beyond your ego. And it's only when you go beyond your ego that you can begin to experience. You can begin to touch your neshama. You can begin to touch godliness, to experience godliness. And that's so, that's such a freedom. That's such a release. That's such a relief. And that's when you come alive. That's when your neshama bursts out in all its dazzling colors and all its beauty and all its, all that energy, all that stored energy, all that joy, all that hope and that faith and that that goodness that every Jew has deep down. When you remove the ego, you get out of the way and you just allow the neshama to emerge in all its beauty. You allow the inner heart. Because we don't create. The inner heart is there. It's divine. We just have to get out of the way. And you only do that in prayer. Studying Torah doesn't do that for you. Because if you study Torah, it's just a head trip. And it just proves how brilliant you are. And you get more into your ego. And if anything, it only takes you away from your heart, from your soul. That's why prayer is critical. Those Jews who only study Torah, who neglect prayer, who have no time for prayer, have no energy for prayer, don't appreciate what prayer is. And the whole Judaism is studying, studying, studying Torah. It's, it's a mind without a body. It's a mind without a heart. It's a mind without a soul. And that's not a living Judaism. It's not a breathing Judaism. It's not a joyous Judaism. Prayer is essential because prayer is where we can touch godliness. We, we can become godly. We can get beyond our egos. Otherwise we become insufferable. We become so arrogant and so haughty and so disconnected from our own selves. We only go deeper into exile. And Judaism becomes very harsh and dark and oppressive and... So prayer is really the 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 essence of the heart of Judaism. And that's where we experience a personal redemption. And then the Torah comes alive. Because when you pray and then you study Torah, you sense the holiness of the Torah. It's not just a chess game, it's not physics, math proving how brilliant I am, how much innovations I can make in the Torah misinterpret the Torah, put in my own innovations, untruths, impose things that Rashi never said, that the Talmud never said, because just to prove how brilliant I am. But there's a humility. Uh, When you study Torah after prayer, you approach the Torah with a healthy sense of humility. This is the Torah. This is the divine. Every word, every letter in the Torah contains the infinite, contains Hashem approach the Torah with intense humility and if I don't understand it it's due to my own fault and I will do whatever I can to try to honestly understand and to get to the truth of what the Torah is saying not what I say forget about the I but what's God saying what's the Torah truly saying and then the Torah learning will be truly in depth and it's a Torah learning that has integrity that has honesty and it's a Torah learning that inspires that uplifts but this only comes when it's founded on prayer when there's a moment when you forget about yourself and you come face to face with God himself with Hashem through prayer where Hashem becomes your life and then it's the most natural thing in the world it's the most beautiful thing in the world it's wholesome it's uplifting it's inspiring then your Judaism becomes a living breathing dynamic vibrant Judaism which is alive and it's contagious because enthusiasm is contagious. When you're alive, and it's truly your life, then you don't have to preach, and you don't have to impose. It's natural. Just like people are naturally attracted to light, people are naturally attracted to fire, to light, it draws you. When you see a Jew who's alive, who's joyful, who's alive, who's wholesome, who's genuine, you're just naturally attracted, and it resonates within you, because we all have that spark within us. But we want to meet the real Jew. When we meet a false Jew, it's the biggest turnoff. When a Jew just lives the facade, the external, and he deludes himself that he's already he's he's arrived, but he's so far away he doesn't even realize how superficial and external he is, he can't run away fast enough. The Jew naturally and instinctively rejects it and says there's something very not genuine about this person. The Judaism that he's representing is not real. It's not natural. It's harsh. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no inspiration. There's nothing uplifting. There's nothing inspiring. Yes, he's studying Torah. But he's brought God into a dungeon. When you study Torah without prayer, without studying Hasidism, Yes, you're doing something holy and godly, you're studying the divine Torah, you're doing a mitzvah, but you're bringing God into a dungeon. A Jew wants to bring God into a palace, a lit up, beautiful, fresh smelling, delicious palace. To do that, you have to be refined. You have to be a refined person, an egoless person. You have to have sensitivity. You have to be in touch with your nishamma. And the only way to do that is by prayer. Only in prayer we have that experience and uh, that's when we the Torah that we built on that is a Torah that has wings the mitzvah that we do after we pray those mitzvahs have wings and soar and uplift us and in this too in this momentary deliverance of the innermost point of the heart during the service of a prayer a man may be considered to be in a state of unaware or absent minded so to speak this state, the state in which the divine spark within man, his personal shatina is momentarily revealed. It transcends the thought of man and his meditation on the greatness of Hashem. So this is not something that we can force. You know, you can force your mind to think and to comprehend, which leads you to emotions. But that's all external emotions, your conscious emotions. You can't force yourself to experience the subconscious. We, we can't force it. You can prepare for it. You can be open to it, open to receive it. But ultimately, the stirring that comes from within has to come from within. It's not something that you can force. The more egoless you, you put yourself in a position, you open yourself up, the more receptive you are, the more open you are, the more a vessel you are, that that stirring can take place. But that stirring is not by our making. That stirring is divine. After we've prepared ourselves, then Hashem stirs our innermost neshama. And you experience it. And you feel it. It's as if it, comes, it has a life of its own. It's something that comes from deep down within us. There's a stirring and an experiencing. But that stirring is not something you can force. It's something that comes from within. Only Hashem can actually create so we just have to remove the obstacles, get out of the way, open ourselves up. And then in that space, we open ourselves up to that experience. Then the stirring could happen. But the stirring comes by itself. It's like unprepared. Because you, don't, you can't force it. You can't make it happen. And when it comes, it, it has a life of its own. It comes from deep down within us suddenly there's a stirring deep down inside of you that you can feel. You can palpably feel. You can physically feel it. You have an experience that comes deep down within us and your subconscious and you feel it. And you feel something godly and holy. But you can't force it. So it, it, it comes on its own. But it can happen only like these holidays or Shabbat or special moments or, whole, is the or, or dur- during prayer. Mm-hmm. Prayer is like the Shabbat. Prayer is like the Shabbat of the weekday. During prayer, that's when it can happen. That's the time for it to happen. Because with the time of prayer is also an auspicious time. Because the heavens are open at that time. It's a moment to pray. The whole universe is open and conducive to prayer. It's a moment that's conducive to achieve this stirring. But in order to open yourselves up to that stirring, that you have to, it's a lot of hard work. You don't just, it doesn't just happen. There are moments when it just happens, unexpected. We're unprepared. There are times we all have that experience where out of nowhere, suddenly we feel inspired. Out of the blue. You weren't thinking about anything inspiring. We didn't do anything inspiring. Suddenly, out of the blue, we just feel godly, holy, inspired, uplifted. Where did it come from? There was just a stirring from within. That's because we're Jewish, and we have that Jewish spark within us. And sometimes Hashem has mercy on us, and He just wakes us up and stirs us on His own. But that happens rarely, and it's not something you can rely on. Prayer is a time when we can prepare ourselves to the best of our ability, and when we prepare ourselves and we immerse ourselves in the prayer and we try, we open ourselves up, and then Hashem could make that stirring within us and stir up our neshama that will bubble to the surface; it will suddenly emerge. And we'll feel it and experience it. And that's the most rewarding feeling in the world. Because at that moment, you experience godliness. And at that moment, not only you do the right thing, you're not even tempted to do anything else. You're only tempted to do godly things. Because when you you have that inner stirring, and you realize, and you experience godliness then all you want are godly things and godly behavior. You want to think like a Jew and speak like a Jew and act like a Jew, tell a lie, slander, dishonesty, to act in a way that's not Jewish. You're not even tempted because you want to act godly. When you have this stirring of the soul and you realize that godliness is your life, then you want it 24-7. And it feels the most natural thing in the world. But to experience it, this can only happen in prayer even during the week, during prayer. That's the holy moment when we can achieve it, when, it's, when that's the time for it. Of course, it can happen suddenly, out of nowhere, and it does happen occasionally. But the time that we can prepare for it and try our best, is like a prophet. It says a prophet can't force his prophecy. A prophet can prepare for prophecy. He can put himself in a mood, he can play music, he can put himself... But ultimately, prophecy comes from above. Sometimes you prepare and nothing happens. But but when you prepare, and then it can happen. It's like someone said, genius is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Mm. So of course, genius is a spark of inspiration. But to get that inspiration, you have to have the 99% perspiration. If you open yourselves up and you're ready... The genius is someone who sat and wrote for 40 years, and then he wrote a work that, that became a classic. He's been sitting and writing, and he's, he, he was open and ready. When those moments of inspiration came, he was ready for it. But there's nothing spontaneous. A person says, I want to be spontaneous. And so he's a fool. Nothing good in life happens spontaneously. The writer writes every day. The musician plays every day. And then he's ready for that moment of inspiration because he's there. He has the pen in the hand. He's, every day he prepares himself so, so when that moment, that gift comes, he's open. He's ready to receive. Otherwise, a person who has no discipline, a person who doesn't have any structure, a person who doesn't have a daily discipline and structure, yes, he can have genius and inspiration, but it's like rain. The rain comes, but he didn't plow the field. He didn't sow the field. And the rain is wasted. Nothing can grow. Nothing happens. A person can be a fool. A person who's talented but is not organized and not structured wastes, wastes all his talents. Because the talent is a genius. He has a talent, he has a genius, but there's no structure. There's nothing to receive it. It's like a child, like a baby. You have, you have nothing to receive it. So when the, when the inspiration comes, it just it's wasted. But a person who has the discipline, who has the structure and has the perspiration... Then, when you pray, and that's why every day we have to pray. You don't just pray spontaneously. When I'm in a mood, I'll pray. No, you have to pray. There's a structure. Because then, when the inspiration comes, when lightning strikes, you're ready. So, of course, the stirring comes from above. We can't control it. But you have to open yourself up. And the time to open yourself up for it is during prayer. That's the real time of prayer. That's the real meaning of prayer. That's why you take prayer seriously. It's not just mumbling the words and going through the. It's really experiencing it and getting, getting into the prayer with diving into the prayer, with all that you have. And then Hashem will open your heart and the moment will come. You can ask me. You talk about experiencing, but I find that when you do experience it, you're not really, it's, it's subconscious. It's when you start to be conscious of it, when you lose it, do you realize you had it? You understand what I'm saying? In a sense? You don't really you're not conscious of it. At least it's been my experience. Well that we have all the time, because we all have that pintly. We're not conscious of it, but we have it. Here he's talking about redemption is when you actually get to experience it. When you consciously experience your subconscious. That's a moment. That's an experience. That's a that's an experience you won't forget. <laughs> That's an experience that you can feel and it's tangible.
1: And something stirs inside of in you. It's in the
0: moment or it's after the fact? No, no, it's in the moment. And, and it changes you. It, 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 something shifts inside of you. Something wakes up inside of you. Something changes inside of you. You can actually feel it and experience it. That's the meaning of redemption. Redemption is when you cross from the subconscious to the conscious. When you have a communique from your subconscious... An I am from your subconscious into your conscious. And you can feel it and experience it. It's the merging of the subconscious and the conscious. That's a moment of redemption. That's, That's what we've been working towards. and That's what we've been waiting for for thousands of years. For Mashiach. That's Mashiach. The merging of the subconscious and the conscious. That hasn't happened yet. But individually we can experience a little of it during prayer. If you pray properly. Occasionally, Hashem, out of His kindness, out of His grace, just gives us, something stirs inside of us. And we just feel godly, uplifted, wholesome, inspired, seemingly out of nowhere. We don't know where it comes from. We didn't do anything to prepare for it. Sometimes when Hashem sees that we're really losing our way, and we're really falling off, falling off the wagon, Hashem wakes us up and we feel Jewish we feel godly and we want to be Jewish we want to, be, to feel godly that comes out of that comes out of the blue that's a stirring that comes without any preparation <clears throat> but that's rare the normal way to prepare for it so we can make this more part of our lives. Hasidim would pray every day because they try to experience this every day just like when you wake up in the morning you have to eat all over again I ate yesterday <laughs> Why? Is, it's not enough I went to a fancy restaurant. I had a five-course dinner. Today is a new day. Yesterday was yesterday. Today I have to start start all over again. So just because yesterday I had a godly experience, that that was good for yesterday. That carried me for yesterday. Today is a new day. I have to re-experience it. So Hasidim would spend hours every morning praying to try to reach this level, to merge the conscious and the subconscious, to experience that godliness. Because once you experience it, your day will not be the same. It will be a different day. Everything about your day will be uplifted, inspired, wholesome. You'll have clarity. You'll be centered. You'll be focused. You'll know what's important to what's not important. You'll know what your priorities are. It changes your whole experience. You're learning Torahs deeper, refined. Your mitzvot that you do are alive, godly, Holy. The kindness that you'll do that day, the tzedakah you'll do that day will be different. You'll do someone a favor with enthusiasm, with a smile on your face. It changes your whole day. Versus if you start your day without prayer. You don't spend the moment to get focused, to be centered. Then your whole day is scattered. You're scattered. That's how most of us live our lives all the time. We're just scattered all over the place. We do a million things every day from reading the paper in the morning to, 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 to drinking the oranges to going to work. We, we, you know, One has nothing to do with the other. It's like completely disconnected. There's no theme. There's no underlying theme that connects our whole day. It's all, we're just scattered all over the place. And No wonder why we get nowhere. <laughs> but this is prayer. Prayer is essential. Prayer is key. This is your life. Your life depends on it. If you really want to get your act together and your life together. So prayer is the moment when you Merge the conscious and the subconscious. That's the hope. That's what we're aspiring to to achieve in prayer. That's why it takes time. That's why prayer is structured the way it's structured. That's the ladder, Jacob's ladder. That's the dream, to reach heaven. Start out on earth and to climb your way, to reach heaven, to merge heaven and earth. Conscious and subconscious become one. And when you experience it, you experience it. This is an experience that you won't forget, that touches you. It touches your soul. It sings into your soul. Then it's a different Judaism. It's a Judaism that's alive. You know, a Jew is alive. I don't know if you ever met a Jew who's really alive. It's a, it's a nice thing to see. Who's genuine? A Jew is for real. Not just going through the motions and and telling everyone how brilliant he is. Just because he's knowledgeable, that doesn't that doesn't mean anything. You know, the the CD is very knowledgeable. You have a CD today that has the whole Torah on one little piece of metal. So what? I'm not impressed with the CD. The CD, has a, there's some people like that. They're just encyclopedic minds and they have a lot of knowledge. Okay, mazel toh. What's the connection between you and the knowledge? It's like the connection between the CD and the knowledge that you have. The knowledge doesn't affect the CD and the CD doesn't affect the knowledge. It's, it's, it doesn't mean anything. The first Hasidim, don't forget they were the first Hasidim. They were all revolutionaries. They did not grow up Hasidim. They were all rebels. They left and they became Hasidim. And the prize student of this rabbi, this brilliant, genius rabbi, and this prize student ran away and became a chassid. When he came back to town, he said, he said, Why did you leave me? In yeshiva, I taught you how to go through the entire Talmud. Why did you run away to Mizrich, Rabbi Dovber Magad of Mizrich? So he says, I'll tell you. By you, I learned how to go through the entire Talmud. Rabbi Dovber of Mizrich taught me how the entire Talmud should go through me. Mm-hmm. Big difference. The Torah, how does the Torah affect me? How does the Torah impact me? How does the Torah refine me, challenge me, transform me? By you, it's all about intellectual, it's an intellectual game to show how brilliant you are, what a brilliant mind you have. It's all intellect. You're cold, you're harsh, you're mean, you're joyless, you're soulless, you're passionless, your whole Judaism is oppressive and dark, arrogant, egotistical, holier than thou. You make divisions between one Jew and the other. Versus when you study Hasidus and you pray, you're egoless, you're refined, you're sensitive, you're genuine, you're joyful, you're soulful. The Judaism is alive, it's vibrant, it's energetic, energizes you, uplifts you, inspires you. It's like night and day. You are night and this is day. This is darkness, this is the dungeon. You're bringing Hashem into a dungeon or you bring Hashem into a palace. That only comes with Hasidus. It only comes by prayer. Appreciating what prayer is. Because that's the only time we get. Even studying Hasidus is not enough. You have to study Hasidus and then pray to internalize it, to integrate it, to take it to heart, to personalize it, to, to go beyond your ego, to experience some of Godliness. To experience something Godly. Merge a subconscious with the conscious. So this is the point of redemption. Rather, it is a kind of gift granted by Hashem from heaven, from the radiation of the supernal countenance. As it is written, may Hashem make His countenance shine upon you. And it is written, and the Lord, your God, will circumcise, i.e. remove the insensitivity of your heart. And this is a state which exists even now on a temporary basis. During prayer is an auspicious time when Hashem is smiling. Like we have an audience with the king. We have an appointment. The king allows us into his inner chamber. So Hashem is smiling and therefore that's what, that's what causes the stirring of our soul. That our innermost heart could emerge at that moment during, during prayer. Is there a possibility that the blockages that individually we don't believe the whole thing? I think it's more today. It's more ignorance than anything else, because deep down every Jew believes it's just ignorance. Just because a person knows the Talmud backwards and forwards, he's he's ignorant of the soul. Doesn't know that he even has a soul. Doesn't ignorant about godliness. It's very superficial.
1: It's not. We want to believe, but there's a blockage that we
0: don't believe. We all believe. You know, there's no atheists in foxholes. The blockage is that we're distracted. We are attached to material things. So, we delude ourselves that we don't believe. Which but makes the prayer unimportant to us, really. So, you know, we, we delude ourselves that we don't believe. But in moments of truth, we, we all know that we do believe. Which tells us that even now we do believe. It's just the arrogance. It's arrogance. It's... Ego. ego. We have to get over ourselves. Some people never get over over themselves. You have to step away. You know, you can't smell the soup when your head is in the soup. <laughs> your nose is in the soup. You can Smell the soup. you got to step back. you got to step out of yourself. To, to, to. You can't be real when we're so caught up in ourselves. It's all about I, 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 I. You have to step back for a moment. Prayer is the time to step back for a moment. When you step back for a moment, then you can look at yourself objectively. That's why it's so difficult for us to see ourselves honestly and objectively. We never step back from ourselves. So usually we're the last person in the world to see ourselves honestly. We're the last person in the world to notice any fault that we have. It's so glaringly obvious to everyone around us. We, who should know better than anyone, because they don't, they don't even know half of it. It's much worse than they even imagine. We're the last ones to know or to acknowledge. Why? Because we can't see ourselves honestly. Because you have to step back. Try it. You know, it's a good experiment. Try listening to another person. To truly listen to another person, you have to step out of yourself. You have to create an empty space and really listen to another person. Next time someone speaks to you, just it's a good experiment. Try repeating what they said almost word for word without inje- interjecting your own comments and commentaries. You'll see how difficult it is. Because we don't listen. While someone is speaking to us, we're already thinking about our response. We, we didn't hear a word the person said. And that's why the person is not happy, because the person doesn't feel listened to. Sometimes all you have to do is listen. He doesn't need your brilliance. just needs to be listened to. Just listen to what he says. And just, just being listened to is already half the cure. When the person listens to you and repeats what, the main points and the main words, almost word for word what you said... you almost physically feel relief. And then you can go on. But I guess we get stuck because we never feel listened to. No one listens. Everyone is talking. Nobody is listening. But that takes egolessness to go get out of yourself. Create an empty space. You can't fill a full cup. A person who's full, you can't fill. A person who's full of himself, and most people are, you can't fill. You have to step out of yourself. And it's such a rare thing. Today we have a whole society that celebrates ego. I. What's pride? This pride, that pride. What are you pride in? You're not proud of being a mensch, of getting beyond your ego. Everyone is proud of, of being egotistical and being the lowest common denominator and following every urge and every instinct and living like a chazer. This is. Nothing can grow in such an environment. Nothing, nothing can grow in such an environment. A person who's. who's it's so selfish and self-centered. It's all about I, I, I. And a lifestyle, it's all about I. You know, the word for love in Hebrew, ahava, comes from the word hava, to give. To love, you have to get out of yourself. You have to step out of yourself. A-, a culture that celebrates ego and I, and the more egotistical and the coarser you are, and the more arrogant you are, and the more egotistical you are, the more celebrated you are, this is a culture that nothing can grow. This is a culture where only snakes and scorpions can feel at home. This is a desert, a spiritual wasteland. This is, nothing can grow here. No human being It's not livable. To grow something, you have to plow the earth. You have to make it. You have to prepare it. You have to plow it. You have to work with it. Same thing is with our own personalities and characters. For something to grow, to become a mensch, and to become a good human being and a productive human being and a wholesome human being, you got to plow, you got to work with yourself, step out of yourself, try to feel yourself honestly and objectively the way someone else sees, sees you. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is creating a space, creating a space to get beyond yourself, to go out of yourself, just for a moment, get over yourself, just for a moment, give yourself a break. That's what Shabbos is. You know why Shabbos is such a day of rest? What are we resting from? It's giving your ego a break. Six days a week, you're the mover, you're the shaker, you're the macher. One day a week, forget about yourself. You're not the mover, you're not the shaker. Give your ego a rest. And that's such a relief. That's such a day of rest. Just create that space. And then the holiness comes. You don't have to create the holiness. Just by getting out of the way, removing yourself, the holiness just emerges because the holiness is at the center Shabbos is the center of the week just getting out of the way and holiness comes Mashiach is Shabbos so when the ego is out of the way then all that holiness could emerge in surface. I mean this world potentially could be a Garden of Eden without our egos 99.9% of psychologists and psychiatrists would be out of business most of human misery is self-imposed. Families, businesses, partners. We create our own hells on earth. And after 120, it's not that hell is up there and heaven is up there. After 120, you go to the world of truth. So you realize that the life that you had was hell. But when you're, when you're living it, you don't realize. But in the world of truth, you realize... We create our own hell. People are so selfish and so self-centered and so self-absorbed and so egotistical and so arrogant, they literally create their own hell, their own misery. And vice versa. After 120, you go to heaven, you realize you live a life that was heaven. Your life on earth was heaven. Because you were selfless, you were kind, you were good, you were godly, you were connected, you were plugged in. And suddenly everything around you is wonderful. You know, in Russia, they, ha- they had the, the, the Kazakhs. Kazakhs have these long mustaches that go halfway around their, their head. You can't even see the edges of their mustache. And one time, this Kazak got a little schmutz, a little dirt, got, got caught up to the edge of his mustache. And he's running around, he's saying, you know, I don't know, recently, lately, the world, wherever I go, the world, the world smells. It's, it's, You know, he used some more, some more colorful language. And that was his experience. The world didn't change. He had a schmutz that he couldn't see. And suddenly he's not happy with anyone and anything. Nothing is good, and no one is good, and everything is miserable. If you're a good person, everything around you is good. You're positive, you see positive, and you draw positive, and you create positive, and you attract positive energy. If you're negative, you create your own reality, and you withdraw negative energies. And suddenly everything around you becomes miserable and hell and you're angry and you're miserable and nothing is good enough and everyone is no good and nothing is good. It's not a, ref- as the Baal Shem Tov said, nothing is wrong with the world. It's you. It's a mirror. What you see in another person is a mirror. If you're a good person, you see the good in everyone. You focus on the good. You don't see It doesn't bother you, the no good. You see the good. Everyone has good and bad. What do you see? What do you focus on? A good person focuses on the good and he, he ener- he's energized by it. a person who's negative. Nothing is good enough and no one is good enough and it's, nothing is wrong with the world. It's you. It's all you. The proof is, when you're in a great mood, suddenly everything is beautiful. <laughs> Even your worst enemy, ah, it's wonderful, No, ah, it's not so bad. When you're in a horrible mood, your best friend is not good enough. What changed? Your friend hasn't changed, you changed. of human misery is within us. Nothing to do with the other person. We're miserable. We're not happy. We don't have our act together. We're not centered and focused, so we lash out and we project it in the world around us. It's all ego. Imagine a world that was egoless. A world that was genuine. This world would be a garden of Eden. When Hashem created the world, it was a garden of Eden till Adam and Chava became egotistical. They sinned, they became egotistical. They became self-conscious, they became self-aware. And they introduced misery, and death, and pain, and lies, and evil. Mashiach will come. This world will once again become a garden of Eden. So may it happen tonight. <laughs> and uh, instead of Tishabav, instead of fasting, we'll celebrate. And the next year, we'll hear from the Alter Rebbe himself,